My text this Lord's Day is from Micah chapter 4, verse 10. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of of thine enemies. Where is the Lord when the enemy seems to prevail against us? To what are we to cling when the cause of Christ for which we have struggled and suffered loss seems to limp along more like a man on crutches than a man in a race? Dear ones, we are not in a 100-meter race so that in 10 seconds we have run the race set before us. But rather, we are more like in a marathon steeplechase where there are many obstacles, many hurdles that we must jump over, many bodies of water through which we must pass. And God Himself has placed all of them, not some of them, all of them in our path to stretch us, to test us, and to strengthen us in His grace. For the Lord our God has promised in Isaiah 43, 2, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Dear ones, God takes us through such trials so that we never ever forget That the kingdom of God is not built by our might, nor by our power, nor by our resources, but only and always by the sovereign and gracious Spirit of the living God. And what a comfort it is to rest. I mean rest in the wisdom of God who always does what is best and to be able to trust with complete confidence in the knowledge of God who knows the end from the beginning and has determined already that the kingdom of Christ will in fact envelop the whole world. Dear ones, the Lord has not fallen asleep. The Lord has not grown weary in His own cause. But we must remember it's not our cause, it's His cause. He will arouse Himself. And like a mighty warrior, He will abase His enemies and defend His people. Turn with me, if you will, this Lord's Day to Micah, 
chapter 4. As we consider the word of the Lord to Israel of old, as she sought to understand the ways of the Lord while in the midst of her suffering, the three main points of the sermon this Lord's Day are as follows. First, the travail of Israel. Second, the deliverance of Israel. And number three, the consecration of the nations. First of all then, the travail of Israel. Look with me, chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Now why dost thou cry out aloud, Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled, and let her eye look upon, let our eye look upon Zion. Micah chapter 4 details the blessings of the last days when the Spirit of God will draw the nations of the world unto Christ. And these nations, we are told, will say, according to Micah 4.2, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us of His ways, and we will walk in His paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. As we have noted from earlier sermons, the fulfillment of this prophecy was yet future, not only to Micah, but even to the Apostle Paul, who spoke of the same restoration in Romans chapter 11, a restoration of Israel, a restoration as well of the nations, the fullness of the Gentiles being brought in. Then at that time, a glorious time of peace and unity will reign upon the earth and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the whole world will enjoy that peace and unity. However, before the fulfillment of these glorious prophecies, there were times of sorrow and heartache that awaited Israel. I would have you note the shift in tense, the tense of the verb, and the shift in content from Micah chapter 4, verse 8 to Micah 4, verse 9. Look at verse 8. How this time of blessing is spoken of in the future. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Future. 
blessing in the future that would come. But now, notice the shift. <clears throat> now, why dost thou cry out aloud? Not in the future, but now. Why at the present time are you crying out aloud? And so, we turn not only to the present time in Israel's history or the immediate future, but also from a time of blessing to a time of suffering. Israel would not be immediately brought into the joys of that millennial kingdom, but would rather first pass through the purging fires of God's chastening. This seems in general to be, in fact, the Lord's order. The way He usually deals with us and with His people. He says in 1 Timothy 2.12, If ye would reign with me, what must ye do first? Ye must suffer with me. If ye would be exalted, James says, you must first be humbled. Remember that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers before he was exalted to reign with Pharaoh. Israel served Egypt for some 400 years before inheriting the promised land. It was even necessary that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself suffer the rejection of His own people and the wrath of God before entering into the glory of His kingdom. Dear ones, whenever you as God's children suffer, Whatever the suffering that comes your way, whenever you suffer, remember that suffering is not an end in itself. But that suffering is always preparing you to enjoy God's blessings. It is always, in every case, preparing you, if you are a child of God, to enjoy His blessings both in this life and that which is to come. <clears throat> the suffering of Israel of old is likened by Micah to a kind of suffering <clears throat> which men cannot fully appreciate, except perhaps from a distance. The suffering of a woman who labors in travail to bring forth her child. Now, I know some of us probably do a pretty good job as husbands of suffering with our wives, but I don't think we can in any way compare the suffering we go through, the suffering they go through. But this is what this is compared to in, in Israel's history. Whenever there is a very difficult time coming in Israel's history, the Lord likens it to the travail of a woman who's going through the birthing process. The anguish that she experiences. This is <clears throat> many times, as I said, the case in Psalm 48.7. Consider what the Lord says there. Sorry, Psalm 48.6. Fear took hold of them there and pain as of a woman in travail. 
fear and pain as in the case of a woman in travail. You can also consider another passage which I won't turn to, Jeremiah 6.24. Yes, indeed, promised glory and blessing lie in the future for Israel, but now, as we read Micah's prophecy, now is the time of refinement and suffering. Why? Why the time of refinement and suffering? Well, for Israel's many sins committed against the Lord and committed against the helpless, the most helpless among her. In Micah chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, you will note by way of review, there the Lord says that both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, have transgressed against the Lord their God by following after the sins of Samaria, where was instituted in Samaria worship which God had not authorized and commanded. Yes, they worshipped Jehovah, but they worshipped Jehovah by means of, of inventions of men. Not by that simple institution which the Lord had given. And in Judah, high places were established God had said that worship was to be performed in the temple alone, not in high places, in in various places around Jerusalem where altars existed. God condemned that. He said it was to be offered by His ministers, His priests, in His chosen place in the temple. They had turned against the Lord. They had become, as it were, like a harlot. They had turned against the love that they once had for their Lord and placed their love upon these other embellishments that they added to the time of worship, following the practice of the nations around them. Not only were their sins committed against the Lord, but in addition to that, As I said earlier, there were sins committed against the most helpless, the most weak and vulnerable in society. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 of Micah, the prophecy comes forth by way of a legal lawsuit against Israel when it says, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. But what form will this temporal judgment take when it is brought upon Israel? Well, according to our text, Israel would cry out aloud because all those who did not die of famine or die of pestilence during the siege of Jerusalem by Babylon, those who didn't die during the siege, which went on actually for years, It was a long siege. 
those would who survived suffer even more greatly by the rape and slaughter and torture that was brought upon them by the Babylonians about 100 years later. The temple of the Lord was destroyed and the walls of Jerusalem left in shambles by Nebuchadnezzar. Israel's king, her princes, her judges and wise counselors were led into Babylonian captivity. In 2 Kings 25.7, we find Israel's king, Zedekiah, being led into captivity and the suffering he himself went through. Verse 6 says, So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah. And they gave judgment upon him, and they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with fetters of brass, and carried him to Babylon. The fulfillment of God's promise uttered 100 years before Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem to besiege it. Dear children of God, the Lord in many ways deals with us individually as He dealt with Israel nationally. Will the Lord chasten us when we go astray as He did Israel? Will He at times allow our enemies to seemingly triumph over us as He did Israel? Will He bring us into periods of our life where it seems as though we are in bondage to some sin for which we seem not able to flee? Yes, indeed. God will bring us into those situations. You know, when Christ walked upon the earth, it was fulfilled concerning Him what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And we find this prophecy mentioned by Christ in Matthew 12:20, where it says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. You see, dear ones, that Christ does in His love for us bruise us so that we are brought to our knees before Him. But He will not break us. And Christ does cause the light of His countenance within us at times to grow dim like a flax reed that is barely burning. But He will not quench or put it out when even the faintest glimmer of fire comes from it. What is the Lord doing by His bruising and dimming ministry in times of great travail, sorrow, persecution, discouragement, and stubbornness in our own lives? What is the bruising and dimming ministry of Christ accomplishing in our lives? Let me suggest several purposes for our bruising and dimming. First of all, to cause us to take a long, serious look at our sin in all of its manifestations, whether secret or public sins, 
whether intentional or ignorant sins, whether sins committed against God or sins committed against our neighbor, whether sins committed in worship, at home, on the job, whether sins of the mind, the mouth, of the eyes, of the hands, of the feet, whether sins committed against a family member or sins committed against a stranger, whether sins of neglect and forgetfulness or sins of actual commission. The Lord wants us to take a long, hard look at our sins. Not to stay there, not to bury ourselves there and not move beyond that point, but we need, if we would ever enjoy and know the mercy of Jesus Christ, we must first know the seriousness of our sin, lest we never appreciate in its fullness the mercy and grace of our God. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, you remember what the Apostle Paul said with regard to the type of repentance that should characterize our lives. He says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. There's a kind of regret or sorrow in the world, certainly. But the Christian not only regrets, the Christian grieves, is sorry. The Christian is pained that, that such reproach has been brought upon the name of the Lord. The Christian, again, is in great sorrow because is committed offense against the grace and the mercy of Christ. That's the first thing that God is accomplishing through our bruising and dimming. Secondly, to humble us before the Lord. If we would be exalted before the Lord, as we mentioned earlier, we must first be humbled. And I know of no better way to humble us, sinful human beings, than to places in times of suffering and trial and discouragement, then we are in a place to see it is not the arm of flesh that saves. It's not the arm of flesh that can rescue. It is only, salvation is only in the strong right arm of the Lord our God. Pride and arrogancy, dear ones, corrupt us all to varying degrees. We're all guilty of that particular sin. And every time we exercise and display, whether secretly in our hearts or outwardly to others, this pride and arrogancy, we rob God of His glory by taking credit unto ourselves for what God Himself has accomplished or gives us. You see, we compare ourselves in our own hearts with other people so often, don't we? So that we don't, usually, so that we don't end up looking quite so bad. When we compare ourselves with the, the law of God, when we compare ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, we come out looking pretty bad. And that's where we should be. And that's what will humble us. 
God help us not to compare ourselves with others. When we're talking about sin in our lives, when we're talking about pride and arrogancy, to compare ourselves with Christ. We so often glory in our appearance, in our intellect, our works, our gifts, when the Bible teaches that the Lord is the one who has given us everything that we have, not one thing accepted, everything. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? Why are you boasting? Why are you taking credit to yourselves as if you did it? As if it was something that you inherently had. When it is something which God has blessed you with. Even the thorn in the flesh given to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.7, Paul says, was given so as to keep him from boasting about the excellencies of the revelation he saw to keep him from boasting. Another reason why the Lord bruises and dims us is to send us to Jesus Christ in order that our wounds might be bound up. For He is the one who has come, according to the Scriptures, to heal the brokenhearted. Not to heal the proud. Not to heal those who think that they're already well. That they're not sick. That they have no need of a great physician. But to heal the brokenhearted. And to send us to Jesus Christ in order that we might see that He, of all things, is our greatest prize. Greater than anything that we have here upon the earth. To find in Him our all and our all. Our sufficiency. So that if everything in this life were to be taken from us, we would still be the wealthiest person on the face of the earth because we have Christ. See, dear ones, apart from this bruising and this dimming, we would be like wayward children, seldom sensing our need of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, when we fall into some besetting sin, or discouragement, or fear, or trial, or affliction, or financial setback, or loss of a loved one, or spiritual dryness. We are driven from ourselves and from the arm of flesh to seek the mercy seat of Christ. Like the woman in the Scriptures that came to Christ with the issue of blood, who had spent all of her wealth on doctors, so as to be healed, but was not healed. So we are brought to the place that there is no one who can help us in our travail but Jesus Christ. Everyone else will fail us, but Jesus Christ, He will never fail. 
if we in our weakness will but touch, take hold of the hem of his garment, the weakest of faith, but nevertheless, if it be the faith of a mustard seed, if we simply take hold of the hem of the garment of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will hear us and he will come to our rescue. He will be to us a refuge from the attack of the enemy. He will support and defend us. The testimony of the writers of Scripture who were inspired as well as the testimony of history of faithful witnesses of Christ is that when we place our confidence in Christ, He does not disappoint. He will never fail us. Fourthly, the fourth purpose of the Lord's bruising the reed and denning the flax is this, to turn us from our hypocrisy to a true and living faith. It is so easy, dear ones, to become apathetic about the things of Christ, to simply get into a routine and to go through the motions, to forget what we are really engaging in when we, when we come to worship, when we have family worship, to rush through it with, with little care of what we're doing, or secret worship, or when we minister to others, simply to, to do it in order to be seen by men, to get the pat on the back or the applause of men. It's so easy for us as human beings to fall into that kind of a trap, to give little subtle hints when we've done something and we want to be noticed by others, little subtle hints in our speech something we may say, so that somebody might say, well done. But dear ones, let us learn that if we never receive the applause of men, the praise of men, if we do so unto the Lord our God, we receive His applause. We see, receive His praise. His well done, thou good and faithful servant. Isn't that far more important than the applause of men? Because if you have that applause from God, then if we receive the applause of men, fine. But if we only have the applause of men, but not the applause of God, the praise of God, that's a terrible loss. You remember, as the Lord Jesus <clears throat> wrote in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 20, to the church of Laodicea, which I believe was a church characterized by hypocrisy. The Lord says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. It wasn't that these this church didn't have works. It wasn't that they weren't working by way of outward display and performance. They were. But they were lukewarm in their heart, their passion, their attitude of what they were doing. 
Verse 16, So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. The Lord invites them to hear the stern warning and message about their hypocrisy. And he says, Come, I can give you that which you really need, that which will be true clothing, true riches, that which will not pass away. I can give that to you. Come to me. Come and buy of me. As he says in Isaiah, come and buy without cost. Just come and receive freely the grace which Christ offers all of those who hear and today. Verse 19 says, And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. The invitation, dear ones, is wide open. Come to Christ. Open the door. He will come in and dine with you. Fifthly, fifth reason or purpose and the Lord bruising, condemning us as His children to lead us to be thankful for all of God's mercies and to cease from all our murmuring and complaining. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You want to know what the will of God is? So many people going around saying, what is God's will for me? Well, here's something that he says so clearly. This is his will for your life. Be thankful in everything. Be thankful in everything. Are you expressing your thankfulness and your praise to God in every circumstance, every trial, every affliction through which you pass. Be thankful in everything. <clears throat> Dear ones, a murmuring spirit reveals in reality a very discontented person. A person who is discontented because either they are unbelieving not trusting in the promises of God, but rather believing the worst about God, that He won't provide for them, that He won't take care of them. And so they're extremely discontented. Or, <clears throat> discontentment comes from being covetous. Wanting all of those things which God has not yet in His sovereign wisdom and grace given to you. Saying, I must have this I have to have this. 
Now, with regard to that which we need in our spiritual life to be covetous of good things, spiritual things, that is a virtue. But to be covetous of that which is merely material, to not be satisfied and content with what God has blessed you with, is again to go beyond into this murmuring and discontented attitude. And I would dare say that those who are not praising God throughout the day for His goodness will also be the same ones who are inclined throughout the day to be critical of their brethren. Thankfulness to God and appreciation for the brethren go hand in hand. Murmuring against God, complaining against His providence, and being critical, overly critical, sinfully critical of the brethren go hand in hand. These are the brethren who have a murmuring spirit. These are the brethren who will not suffer with the weaknesses of others. Those who are trying, but who are like that bruised reed, But rather, those who are murmuring all the time are more likely to say, let's break the reed. When Jesus says, no, I didn't come to break the reed that was bruised. They're more likely to say, let's just quench that smoking black. Look how little it's just burning there. It's just barely going. But Jesus says, no. That flax is burning because it is light that I have given that person, an understanding that I have given. And it may be a small faith, but I will in my time make it to glow and to burn more brightly. These are the same brethren who are murmuring against God, who are not thankful to the Lord, who are critical of others that go around sowing discord, amongst the brethren, bringing about disunity within the body of Christ, within the church. Christ's bruising of us brings us to see how much we have to and we need to be thankful for. Every crumb and morsel we have is from the Lord. Are you thankful for everything that God sends you? And even the trials and the suffering They prepare you for His blessings. Are you learning? Are you growing? Are you even trying and desiring and seeking to be thankful for the trials in your life? Be thankful in all things, for this is the will of God for you. Sixthly, the sixth purpose, two more, The sixth purpose in bruising and the dimming ministry of Christ to stretch us far beyond our comfort zones so that we are forced to trust the Lord Jesus Christ like we were never forced to do so in the past. You see, as long as everything is going well, the blessings are coming, there are no heartaches or anything like that, it's very easy to to feel very comfortable. 
And most of us, by nature, want to stay right in that place. The Lord said, uh, would you rather be here and enjoy all these comforts, or would you rather be over there and, and, and suffering all this persecution, ridicule? Most of us would say, well, I'd prefer to be over here, Lord. But the Lord knows in order to, to stretch us, He has to take us beyond our comfort zones. And this is how He does so. He brings us travail. He brings these things into our life in order to demonstrate to us that we, by God's grace, can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Not some things, but everything, every trial, every heartache. We can do it. We can persevere through it and be faithful because of the strength that Christ supplies. And seventhly, lastly, Christ bruises us to teach us that our true joy is Jesus Christ. Our true happiness is Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ was the life of Paul. That was his life. But unfortunately, with many of us, at various points in our life, we would have to say Christ was not my life consciously at that point. There were many other things that were my life, but Christ was not my life. So that if I would have lost those things, if I would have lost those possessions, that loved one, my life would have been taken from me. But Paul says, when Christ is our life, everything could be taken from us. Even our physical life could be taken from us and it's gain. We profit because our life, Jesus Christ, awaits us in heaven. Do you have a view of life that way? You cannot possibly, dear ones, you cannot possibly, as long as that is your mind and your attitude, you cannot be disappointed. You cannot be crushed and destroyed as long as consciously Christ is your life. Let anybody bring against you what they will. If Christ is your life, you'll overcome. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? We come to the second main point and we'll move through the last two points rather quickly here. The second main point, the deliverance of Israel. The deliverance of Israel. If you have your Bibles... I will read, first of all, chapter 4, verse 10, the latter part of that verse, where after speaking of the travail being taken to Babylon, the deliverance 
is mentioned in these words, there, that is in Babylon, there shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. And then consider with me verses 12 uh, through the first part of verse 13. Again, note the, the, the whole <clears throat> message of victory and of deliverance here. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord. That is, the enemies who come against God's people, they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. <clears throat> Neither understand they His counsel, for He shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people. We'll save the last part of that verse for the next main point. Dear ones, the Lord is the deliverer of His people even out of seemingly impossible circumstances. Gideon's 300. Gideon's 300 overwhelmed over 100,000 of the enemy. Remember a storm and a violent storm that came up while the disciples were in the boat and Jesus was sleeping there in the boat. And they thought they were to perish. But the Lord miraculously preserved them and delivered them out of that one, out of that particular trial. The Lord is even able to deliver out of death itself. Lazarus was dead four days. That certainly seemed like a, an impossible circumstance or situation to man. But God is able to raise even the dead if He so chooses. Paul and Silas had been thrown into jail. The Lord sends an earthquake to deliver them. And even in the course of suffering, martyrdom, for the Lord. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, are we overcome when we lay down our lives for the truth? When we suffer for the cause of Christ, are we overcome? Well, listen to what God says. These are speaking of those who suffered and were martyrs for the sake of Christ. They exclaim, and they, ex they overcame him, that is, the saints overcame the dragon, the enemy of their souls. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. And even in our dying, we are delivered. We are delivered from the pains, the heartaches of this life, the temptations, the sins of this life into the presence of God. Micah says in <clears throat> Micah 4.12 that Israel's enemies are gathered with the purpose of destroying her. But the Lord of hosts has gathered all of the enemies there. They think they're there to destroy Israel. 
But the Lord gathers the enemies together so as to conquer them. They have a particular idea and plan in mind, but God frustrates and, and foils the plans of the wicked. He brings them together so as to make their fall more conspicuous and evident to all. You remember how in the days of Hezekiah, the Assyrians under Sennacherib surrounded Jerusalem. They mocked, they taunted the people of God in Jerusalem. They tried to discourage them to give up because who was their God, the God of Israel? Who was their God that, that He could possibly save them? They had conquered all of the heathen gods, the pagan gods. They had conquered them all. They think their God really could save them. And Hezekiah threw himself down before God and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord heard his prayer. And Isaiah the prophet said, The Lord shall deliver you. And that night, an angel of death went out amongst the, the Assyrians. And 186,000 Assyrians were killed, slain before the power, the might of our God. Yes, our God is able to deliver us. And He will deliver us. To the same effect is the word of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 19. When speaking of, of divisions and heresies that come into the church, the Lord says... They may have those who promote division and heresy within the church. They may have a particular motive. They may have a particular design. But God says He brings it into the church of Jesus Christ so as to show those who are approved, those who are not misled, those who will not follow the ways of division within his body, and heresy within his church. And it's very interesting that Micah here emphasizes, the God, uh, emphasizes God's deliverance where it occurs, there, while they're in Babylon. That nation which was the greatest political power on the earth at that time, even from Babylon shall you be delivered. No king on earth can thwart the purposes of God. God did indeed deliver Israel from Babylon 70 years afterwards and a faithful remnant returned to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, the prophet uh, Zechariah, uh, Haggai, the Lord provided miraculous deliverances for His people. And He has done so, done so throughout history. Biblical history and history outside of the Scriptures. God is still delivering His people. Do not lose hope. 
He is the same God. Man changes, but he says of himself, I change not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Put your confidence in him. redeem when it says that he would redeem Israel this means to purchase or to pay for the freedom of one who is in bondage Micah says there in Babylon shall the Lord redeem you from your enemies the redemption in view here from Babylon was a redemption from the political authority and power of Babylon. But the word used here for redeem is the same root word that's used in Leviticus 25.25, 25, where it speaks of a kinsman redeemer, a relative who came to the aid and the help of a brother who because of his poverty was sold into slavery. And who came and said, I will pay for my brother's debt so that he might escape the slavery, that he might come into his possession and his inheritance. This is the same root word that we find here in Micah that is used there in Leviticus 25.25. And the Lord here in Micah 4.10 gives us a foreshadowing of a far more blessed and significant type of redemption. The redemption of sinful men by a kinsman redeemer who became a relative by becoming man and paid in full the debt of sin so as to set us free from the bondage and the enslavement to sin and to Satan to which we were bound. And he became a man and bore the infinite wrath of God so as to deliver his people from their sins. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus that came so low and suffered so much to set us free. Having now suffered, having now paid the price, having now defeated in principle all of his enemies, namely Satan and sin and the world and death and hell, what enemy remains that could completely and totally conquer we who have Christ within us? What sin cannot be overcome when Christ has already died for all our sin? What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The deliverance of Israel spoken of here also addresses her trampling down of her enemies or rather Christ trampling down her enemies for her, which will be nationally realized in its most complete sense when Israel is called again unto Jesus Christ in these last days. When all of her enemies will either be destroyed or converted 
so that peace and unity exists between the nations and Israel under Christ, all being a part of the same church of Jesus Christ. The last main point is this, the consecration of the nations. In Micah chapter 4, verse 13, the latter part of verse 13 It simply says this, And I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, that is, the gain of the nations, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Here the Lord comforts His people with the promise that He will devote all the gain, all of the substance, all of the wealth of the conquered nations to the Lord Himself to use for His own purpose and benefit to promote the cause of Jesus Christ. We may be, dear ones, in great poverty. We may be struggling to keep our our noses above water. The Lord God says that His cause will not suffer because He will bring the wealth of the nations into His kingdom. He will take their gain and it will promote the furthering of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the whole world. You remember when Israel left Egypt? What did they do? They went to all the Egyptians and said, we need provisions. We need this. We need that. And the Egyptians gave all that they asked unto them. They, in effect, plundered the Egyptians. The enemies of Israel, the enemies of God were plundered and those very things were used in the wilderness to build the tabernacle, the house of God. Those very things they took from the Egyptians promoted the kingdom of God. And so it will be and so it will always be the case. The heathens lay up the wealth for the godly. And this is what we find happened when the Lord delivered Israel out of Babylon. It was the wealth of Media and Persia that was freely given so that the temple of the Lord might be restored and so that the city of God might be rebuilt. It was the wealth of the nations that was freely given. The Lord promises that He will bring the wealth of the nations into His kingdom. In conclusion, when we look at the reference to Babylon here in Micah chapter 4, I want you to consider something, I hope, more meaningful than simply the Babylon that lived, that existed back in the days of Israel of old. And as you consider this, consider the words of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. 
For there that they that car- carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. That is, raise meaning there, destroy it, tear it down. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed? Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Who are we to understand in our day and age that Babylon speaks of? I submit to you, dear ones, that there is another Babylon spoken of in Scripture far more dangerous and cruel than the Babylon of old, which ruled for only 100 years or so. In Revelation chapter 17, the Apostle John is given a vision of another Babylon who, in verse 5, is called Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The rule of this Babylon and its popish antichrist will rule for 1260 years. Not a mere 100 years, 1260 years according to Revelation chapter 11. This woman, according to Revelation 17, is not a virgin. The true church, the faithful church is a virgin. But this woman is a harlot. This is not a civil body but rather an ecclesiastical body. For the beast, the harlot sat upon, is the civil government which carries her and promotes her throughout the world. This is the Romish church, which is ruled over by the popish antichrist, so identified in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Consider here that it says she is dressed in purple and scarlet the very colors of her bishops and cardinals. She is decked with much wealth, gold, precious stones and pearls, as we find in all the great cathedrals of Rome. She offers her cup of the mass in this particular (coughs) chapter, chapter 17. She offers a cup to the nations to drink of this cup which signifies the Mass which the Roman Catholic Church offers to her people. A perversion, a distortion, an abomination, a resacrificing of the Lord Jesus Christ. She is drunken with the blood of the saints and martyrs of Christ, this chapter says, and history is filled with her bloody persecution and slaughter of millions of Christians. She has enslaved, according to Revelation 18.13, the souls of men. Note that she is the mother of harlots, which implies that she has daughters. She has daughter churches, as it were, that have likewise introduced 
her abominations into their doctrine. Arminianism, a man-centered salvation, is promoted in many churches that wouldn't formally identify with Rome rather than teaching that God alone is sovereign and from beginning to end, God saves. <clears throat> Her daughters also promote their own worship or the worship of the harlot. A man-centered worship. Man-inspired hymns rather than psalms which God has given to us in His Word. The use of instruments into worship were introduced into the church by Rome not by Protestant de denominations or churches. Images and pictures of Christ, Christmas and other so-called holy days. And many of her daughters have also taken her government, the tyranny of binding the consciences of men with the mere dictates of another man. This is a more cruel and dangerous Babylon, dear ones, for which we must ever be on guard and must come out from her and out of all of her daughters. That's why we find in Revelation 18.4, the prophet John writes, Come out of her. Come out of Babylon. Flee from her. Have nothing to do with her. God's people, though enslaved, in this spiritual Babylon, experienced a great deliverance at the time of the Protestant Reformation that have since, to our great sorrow and grief, have since that time been ever so gradually drawn back to this mystery Babylon. Again, not by formally uniting with her, although more and more churches are lining up to discuss how they may be one with Rome again, but more importantly, by adopting so many of her poisonous teachings and practices. I submit to you that the Church of Jesus Christ has since the Reformation returned in varying degrees and even Reformed churches have returned in varying degrees to that Babylonian captivity from which the Church was redeemed by her Savior. The saddest part about the present Babylonian captivity is that Israel of old knew that she had been led into captivity, whereas the church of this age has no idea that she is in captivity. However, dear ones, we rejoice for the same God that assured Israel of old that we or that she would be delivered from her captivity has also promised us that the faithful church of Christ will be delivered from the Romish harlot. For the Lord of hosts will completely destroy her and we believe and pray that it's not that far in the future that the Lord will destroy this Romish harlot. And at that time, will break forth the dawning of the millennial kingdom here upon the earth, even as Revelation 18 and 19 speak of her downfall, and Revelation 20 speaks of the millennial kingdom that will come. But in the meantime, dear ones, before the blessings all dawn, before they come, we must undergo 
like Israel of old, we must undergo much travail as faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be willing to be martyrs, to die for what we believe. Our convictions must be strong. They must be solid in the Scriptures. We must follow the faithful witnesses who have left us a path to walk as they walked according to the Word of God. We must most of all, dear ones, when we're in travail, cast our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, for from Him will come our deliverance. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, blessed be thy most holy name, for thou art great and mighty, mighty to save and deliver, merciful unto thy people. We praise thee for our Savior, who will not break the bruised reed, nor quench the smoking flax, but, O Lord our God, will come. And as we are bruised, and as we learn from that bruising, He will support us. He will cause us, O Lord, to walk in faithfulness. We praise Thee, our Father, for the teaching from Thy Word on the travail that we must pass through as Thy people. Help us, our Father, as we do pass through to realize that our eyes must be firmly focused upon Christ and the glory to come. For Thou art preparing us for the blessings to come through all of our sufferings now. We thank Thee, our God, for Thy deliverance and Thy salvation, for destroying all of Thine and our enemies. And we do anxiously await when all of thine enemies are put beneath thy feet, not only in principle, but in history as well. And we ask these things and pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, 
abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.